Welcome to Season 2 of Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. In just a few weeks' time, the 46th President of the United States, Joe Biden, will take office with the COVID-19 pandemic in full swing. What will his election and the 45th President's turbulent departure mean for Canada? We'll hear from a panel of experts about the implications of our neighbor's presidential politics and whether any of those implications might be contagious. Law in the Time of COVID-19 explores the law and policy of pandemic response. We're looking at how governments, organizations, and individuals are managing the impact and meeting the moment. And because it wouldn't be a law firm podcast without a disclaimer, here's a disclaimer. McCarthy Tatro is providing this podcast as a public service, if we may say so ourselves. It may contain legal information, but it does not contain legal advice or a legal opinion, recommendation, or statement of policy of McCarthy Tatro. Here's our episode, South of the Border, Part 1. When we launched this podcast back in March, we had no idea how long it, or at least its name, would last. Law in the time of COVID-19 came to be during those first few weeks of the crisis, when commitments were vanishing from our calendars, and when working from home was unfamiliar and new. We wanted ways to keep connected to one another, to our clients, and to our communities. And this was one of them. Eight months, and approximately 200 years later, the time of COVID-19 doesn't appear to be done with us just yet. Those of us who are lawyers have seen our work reform around the remote reality of practicing during a pandemic. Video conferencing, which between March and, say, May, was a fun, if inadequate, substitute for seeing friends and keeping connected, has become primarily a way to meet with clients, to examine witnesses, and even to conduct trials and appeals. The world has gone on, as it must, but every moment, every milestone, is warped to some degree, as if the pandemic is rendering our world like Picasso. Life in the time of COVID-19, though, continues. And so does this podcast. Our episodes will be coming less quickly than they did in March and April, but we'll have lots more to discuss. In the second wave of Law in the Time of COVID-19, we'll explore our new normal and consider how long it might last. We'll look at how the pandemic is shaping major events and the more mundane moments of our everyday lives. And, of course, we'll be tying it all together with the questions of law and policy that our McCarthy Tatro colleagues are working on with our clients across Canada and around the world. We're kicking off Season 2 of this podcast with one of the most significant world events of the last eight months, the U.S. presidential election. A record number of voters cast ballots, many of them by mail, and denied President Donald Trump a second term. Joe Biden will take office as the 46th president on January 20th, 2021. Canadian businesses are navigating the turbulent end of the Trump administration and preparing for a presidential transition, all while COVID-19 case counts continue to rise. And as governments across Canada return to tougher public health measures not seen since the spring. What will developments in American politics mean for Canada? On November 10th, McCarthy Tatro hosted a panel discussion on that question, featuring four of my colleagues. 
the Honorable Jean Charest, former Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, former Premier of Quebec, and a partner and strategic advisor at McCarthy Tetro, Martha Harrison, a partner in our firm's International Trade and Investment Law Group, Awi Sinha, a partner in our litigation group and head of our firm's government law and political risk team, and Aliyah Ramji, a partner at McCarthy Tetro and co-founder of MT Ventures, a division of the firm that delivers tailored legal and strategic advice to high-potential businesses in the startup phase. Our moderator was Allison Smith, a longtime broadcast journalist who was CBC TV's Washington correspondent between 2005 and 2009. We're going to bring you the conversation in two episodes of this podcast, but this is part one. I am so pleased to be a small part of this conversation, and I know that it's going to be thoughtful and perhaps even provocative um, over the course of the next uh, hour and a half. Um, As you mentioned, some of the elements of this political drama in the United States are still uh, playing themselves out, and it may be an unsettling few weeks yet. But that said, the planning uh, for not only politicians, but obviously for businesses on both sides of the border must go ahead as well. We are going to focus on the impact of an anticipated Biden administration on Canadian business, but also keeping in mind um, some of the uh, uh, disruptions, shall we say, that may uh, come along the way. So let's first of all um, set the scene. And I want to start with you, Awi, because I know that you've got an expertise in political and election law, and that seems to be what we're looking at over the next few weeks, a bit of a legal fight. It's good good news for lawyers. Uh, Lay some of the groundwork for us here, um, where some of those numerous court cases um, sit, what the state of play is. Sure. Thank you very much, Alison. First of all, it's a real pleasure to join my colleagues from McCarthy Tetro uh, to speak to you and to our clients and friends today. It's a very important issue. Uh, We have uh, the best friendship and the largest unprotected border in the world. So for reasons that are cultural, political, and certainly economic and related to our business uh, thriving, it's important for us what happens in the United States with their presidential politics. Um, And my colleagues are going to talk about uh, the overview of how the American election affects a macro-political point of view, and certainly Mr. Charest will have some great insights into that. And then financial markets, trade, and technology uh, as some key industries that we see will be affected by the change, excuse me, to a Biden administration. My job, I guess, is to be the asterisk buster, the elephant in the room that everyone is grappling with, uh, even though there has been networks calling Joe Biden as the president and moving into a insurmountable lead in electoral college votes. Uh, We do hear simultaneously news that obviously President Trump has not conceded that race, the GOP at any level has not formally conceded that race, and that they are pursuing, as you will hear trumpeted on the news again and again, and by the administration, litigation with respect to the outcome of the election in Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, and that they have filed over a dozen lawsuits either through the Trump for President Incorporated campaign uh, or through state or national Republican parties or for sur- by surrogates. I'm gonna speak about what's happening with the lay of the land very quickly in a moment. And, and, and we've uh, all had a chance perhaps to see some reporting on that at a macro level uh, or see some of the good re- journalism that's being done to try to keep track of these lawsuits. I've had the pleasure uh, in preparation for this to go over some source documents and court filings 
Um, and one thing that has come to mind as a principal proposition that I think all of our listeners and viewers should keep in mind is that the fact that this is being reported as news has created an element of uncertainty. That's fair. But all we know about the litigation that's been filed by the Trump campaign thus far is effectively information about the volume of it. And I think that there is a political dependency, and Mr. Sherry can comment on this. Uh, once you look at the underlying lawsuits, there's a political strategy by the Trump for President campaign to create uncertainty about the Biden presidency because of the volume of litigation that is out there and the statement that there is continuing litigation. So networks have not called the results yet. We have to wait for what the courts say. But incredibly rapidly, it is becoming apparent that if you look at either the potential impact of any given lawsuit, or frankly, all of these lawsuits or applications as they are in aggregate, they're not going to have the possible impact of having, of changing the overall electoral college vote in a way that shifts it to Donald Trump. Similarly, you have to do an assessment of every case on its merit. And I don't for a second here suggest I have reviewed the work of some excellent lawyers in the United States who have taken the cases in front of them and filed them. And uh, as a litigator, I know that I've lost cases I thought I should have won and I've won cases I perhaps had no business winning. Um, but all of that being said, you can look at a case at a certain objective level to determine whether there's merit to what's happening. And just on that sort of analysis, it certainly does not seem that despite the volume, these cases can have the impact or have the merit to achieve the impact necessary to change the electoral outcome. So maybe I'll stop there for a moment and then just later on, I can speak to some of the specific cases uh, as we get into discussion about how we might be affected in different places. Okay, so Ari, let me now then put sort of a similar question to you, Jean Charest, talk about the politics of this, given the uncertainty of the next few weeks, uh, whether that you know results in a change or, or not. I mean, as, as always says, it's unlikely to. Um, what does that mean for the transition and presumably the beginning of the Biden presidency? Maybe a general comment to start with, Allison. I mean, it's difficult for us to overstate the importance of the relationship with the United States. It's geography, it's trade, overwhelming uh, trade partner, and we're a trading country. And uh, 400, you know, pre-COVID, there's 400,000 people a day across the border, and uh, $2 billion worth of trade every day. So, I mean, it's, it's an exceptional relationship, and it's a people-to-people -people relationship beyond the political leaders. So, you know, from time to time, we may or may not like one leader on both sides of the border, but in the end, we were very lucky to be in this neighborhood. The other thing about the relationship that everyone should keep in mind is that from the Canadian perspective, this isn't just about a neighbor. It's about managing the relationship with a superpower. And superpowers behave a certain way. And they have impulses. We see that with the emergence of China as a superpower. And for Canada, the art of politics for a prime minister and at lower levels has been to deal with that. And we've done it pretty successfully, pretty well. I'm thinking of Kuzma, the re renegotiation of NAFTA that was very well done by the, uh, by the Trudeau government, but mobilizing a whole host of Canadian society. Now, on this campaign, it's fascinating. If you were to talk to the Republicans, they'd probably tell you they won. They didn't win the presidency. 
But, uh, you know, Trump got 8 million more votes in this campaign than he did the last time. He increased his votes uh, with Hispanics, with, uh, with the black uh, men in, in the United States, with Asians. I mean, and they actually made gains in the House and the Democrats lost seats. And in the Senate, where there was expectations of a Democrat majority, it's now neck and neck with uh, two uh, runoffs in Georgia and two other seats that we are expected will, will fall on the Republican side. This campaign was very much a, a referendum about Trump. Uh, and uh, and in, the, in the outcome of the campaign, the Democrats are gonna have to look very closely at what they were offering. Uh, their essential message, the one that Americans heard was, we're against Trump. But they didn't capture much more than that, even though Biden had a very detailed uh, campaign uh, platform. And so uh, in that respect, it's going to be uh, interesting as we go ahead. There's some balance in the, uh, in the Congress. And on transition, well, usually it's a moment of grace, Allison, right? both here in Canada and the United States. It's not a moment of partisanship. And the tradition is very well entrenched that there's a reaching out on both sides, an acknowledgement of the outcome, respect for electors, and let's move on with, uh, with uh, the change. That's not happening now. It'll make it more difficult for the uh, Biden administration. I understand there are contacts between the transition teams, but the mechanics and the, and the bureaucracy has not yet received the go-ahead to turn over the keys to the, uh, to the buildings and to the resources necessary for a complete uh, transition. So that makes it more difficult for Biden to do. But on the 20th of January next, someone's gonna be president of the United States and someone will not. There's a drop dead date there. And, and so whatever objections and whatever obstacles there are in the way, that's in the end, that's what's gonna happen. Now, two things about the period in which we're in. I think there are very reasonable chances that this lame duck Congress will do the major stimulus package everyone was hoping for as phase two before the election. And that could be a $2 trillion compromise, very important for a whole number of American citizens who are running the risk of losing their homes or, or, or their apartments and businesses, by the way. So I'm, I'm hopeful that will happen and that will have an impact on Canada. It'll stimulate the, uh, uh, the economy, and, and that's a, an important part of what I'm hoping for will happen in this transitional period. And the second thing is that Canada and Canadian government at all levels need to get in very quickly to the Biden transition team to identify key issues that affect us and get the transition team to deal with them before they table legislation based on the simple rule of life that it's easier to do it that way than to put the toothpaste back in the tube once they've tabled the legislation. So those are the things that I would look for in transition. Um, I, I just want to pick up on that a little bit. Um, we heard Prime Minister Trudeau, um, who spoke to Joe Biden this week, um, talk yep. about some of the priorities that the Canadian government has going forward, climate, energy, trade, China, and obviously COVID, which is something that um, Joe Biden talked about every day during the campaign. Given the tone that we're hearing coming out of this uh, new and sort of growing Biden administration, um, what will that mean practically for, for example, uh, issues like COVID and the, and the cross-border issues uh, related to that? 
Well, the border has been closed now for uh, close to eight months. And from month to month, we keep it closed. We know that public opinion in Canada very firmly objects to reopening the border. And the reason for that, I think, is simple. We see what's happening. There's a sense that there's chaos. It's not coordinated. Canadians are scared. They don't want to see the border reopen. Now, in the meantime, Canadian officials would tell you, Alison, that trade has continued. The flow of trade has gone on pretty much uninterrupted. So that's a positive. In other words, we've been able to do business notwithstanding the constraints on reopening the border. Uh, the sooner both countries are able to get the COVID virus under control, the sooner we'll be able to reopen. But I actually don't think that's going to happen until Canadians have a sense that things are under better control in the United States and that, uh, and that uh, we can allow people to move to both sides without starting up a third or a fourth wave. All right. So Martha, let me pick up with you then, um, with your expertise on trade. Um, give us a sense of how you think, or what the critical issues are now going forward with a new administration uh, working its way into place. Sure. Thanks, Alison. Hi, everyone. It's really nice to be here today. Um, I, I think to start, as Mr. Charest um, mentioned, it is very difficult to exaggerate how important trade with the U.S. is for Canada on any subjective and objective measure. In what I call the normal times, uh, trade with the U.S. accounts for almost always over 70% of Canadian exports and 50% of our imports. So we need to have a secure trading relationship with the United States, which is one of the reasons why it's been challenging for both Canadian importers and distributors and for Canadian regulators and our federal government to understand the more impulsive nature of the U.S. trade policy that we've seen over the last uh, few years. If, if we could put um, you know, our views in a crystal ball in terms of what a Biden administration might prioritize. In fact, it, it's interesting because as I read in an article a couple of days ago, if one closes one's eyes, and here's the description of what is likely to be a Biden trade agenda. It is not uh, hugely different than what we have seen through Trump. There are arguably continued protectionist policies. The Buy American policy is certainly uh, a key, key policy on which Biden has run for, uh, in context of the election. Um, the difference is going to be, the main difference I believe is going to be that the rules and the, the rules of understanding and the rules of engagement will likely be a bit more predictable uh, and there will likely be more transparency around the key issues that join and separate Canada and the U.S. from a trade perspective. But the issues themselves, uh, for example, the Buy American piece, those are not going to be uh, dramatically different. We may see some differences that, that we can talk about um, over the course of today around Biden's position on things like the WTO, potentially Biden's position on emergency tariffs that Trump had uh, instituted over the course of the last four years. But from a pure trade policy perspective, we will likely continue to see some protectionist uh, agenda, uh, but it will be delivered with a softer touch. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to ask you about that because certainly when you 
Biden has portrayed himself as the champion of the American worker, the middle class, that he is going to um, listen to that portion of the American population that felt it had, hadn't been listened to. And I mean, Trump played that card too. But when you look, for example, at something like tariffs um, on steel and aluminum and his, the political necessity uh, for him um, to look closely at industries like that, what, what, what might that mean for Canada? So if we look at the concept, the concept of tariffs that have been a real thorn in the side of Canada as it relates to its relation, its trading relationship with the U.S., um, President-elect, if, if we're permitted to call him that, <laughs> President-elect Biden is going to likely inherit, in, inherit that trade policy that's characterized at the moment by tariffs on, on global imports. So as you mentioned, Alison, steel, aluminum uh, from many areas of the world, on wine and cheese from Europe, on, on nearly three quarters of everything the U.S. buys from China. Um, and what we don't know at this juncture uh, is what Mr. Biden uh, envisions insofar as potentially reviewing those tariffs. There is certainly a movement um, from certain uh, areas in the Democratic Party for a Biden administration to reconsider or at least review the tariffs that have been imposed on those goods. But at the moment, uh, uh, Mr. Biden has been um, uh, largely silent on how he would handle those current tariffs. What I think is fair to predict is that it is less likely that a Biden administration would initiate new tariffs on the basis of national security as Trump did, um, especially as against U.S. key key trading partners like Canada. So we can't obviously guarantee that there wouldn't be the same type of trade war on the tariff end between Canada and the U.S. under a Biden administration. But I think it is fair to say that it is less likely that Biden would resort to uh, the, uh, the, the facilities under their local rules that would allow for these tariffs to be instituted against Canadian goods entering into the U.S. under the guise of, uh, of security. Mm. I, I also, can you go a little bit more? I, you know, he talked, he's talking about a Buy American plan, you know, um, and, and that's, it's, it's almost like you, you could put on, you know, Donald Trump's hat and, and say the same thing. Um, right. uh, do you want to speak more about that? Because often the trade, and we've talked, you know, we've looked at trade between provinces and states too, those kinds of relationships. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what that might mean. Absolutely. So I think it's, I think one way to sum up the background thought process for a Biden Buy American plan, which he's been very vocal about over the course um, of his presidential run, is that the Biden team has sort of propelled as their position the concept that when the government spends tax dollars, it should spend tax dollars on U.S. products and U.S. investments and U.S. services, which necessarily means that from a federal procurement perspective, you know, arguably those opportunities are going to be more laser focused on rewarding U.S. suppliers as opposed to international suppliers like, uh, like Canada. 
under the uh, Buy American Plan, more specifically, there's a $400, um, $400 billion procurement investment that's going to power new demand, and at least that's what it's designed to do for American products, for materials that are uh, created and manufactured in America, for services that are delivered in America. Uh, there is going to be a, a, a delivery of purchasing power to buy American. And again, it's really at, with the backdrop to ensure that U.S. tax dollars are spent rewarding U.S. suppliers. There are There is the carbon adjustment fee that would purport to force countries exporting goods to the U.S. to meet certain climate and environmental obligations, and a number of different tightening uh, rules around those procurement opportunities. Um, it is fair to say that this Made in America plan sounds a lot like what we've been hearing from Donald Trump over the last four years. Uh, and there's no doubt that this plan is ambitious. In fact, I believe in absolute terms, Biden's plan is the largest fisc fiscal stimulus package um, that has been created. So from a general um, stimulus perspective, I think Canadians should welcome that because when the U.S. economy flourishes, so do we because we are so tightly, trade, so tightly tied together by our trading relationship. However, uh, where it becomes challenging is where Canada feels like it is being shut out of those opportunities mm -hmm. to provide services and goods in the U.S. under this plan when it is clearly favoring in certain instances uh, the U.S. suppliers. And where it gets even more tricky, this is like a confluence of all of these trade issues at once, where it gets even more tricky is how Canada might fight back against that. The, um, after 24 years of NAFTA, Canadian suppliers now have to look to other trade agreements for relief um, when it comes to U.S. procurement, because Canada is not a party to the USMCA uh, government procurement chapter. And that means that suppliers who have a grievance, um, or Canada, if it has a grievance, with the way that this Buy American plan is executed in, this, in the U.S., they have to look elsewhere um, other than the USMCA or the CUSMA, as we call it in Canada, to find relief. And that means that there will be, that means that we will have to look to the WTO um, or perhaps the CPTPP as a, in the context of Mexico as a way to regulate these disputes. And so there's a real confluence of trade challenges that surround that Buy American plan in and of itself. Hmm. You mentioned the WTO previously. Do you want to just touch on that briefly and then we can um, move on? A absolutely. So. The WTO, it's no secret, we are kind of in shambles right now with the WTO. As a free trader by nature, and certainly as a practitioner in international trade, I mean, this literally keeps me up at night. <laughs> I, you know, I think that there, um, there are all sorts of reasons why a Biden administration should re-engage with the WTO process with re with re-engaging with um, you know ensuring the validity of the WTO pro process but in fact Biden has been notoriously silent on that WTO issue um, and at the moment he has not confirmed whether he will join Canada and the EU and other trusted trading nations in their in our attempts to repair WTO dispute resolution in particular 
Um, as we know at the moment, uh, the U.S. is standing in the way of an effective appellate body, um, largely for political reasons. Um, and, and so I think it's fair to say that even if Biden stands for what I would call stronger multilateralism, Mm -hmm. uh, in the context of the of the WTO and his position there, it might actually not be favorable for his sort of first 90 days or first year in office to re-engage with the WTO at the outset, largely because he may have vulnerability under the WTO agreements because of this Buy American plan. Um, and so it may be, it may arguably be to the U.S. advantage to continue um, with sort of the fight against this legitimacy at the WTO to the extent that they have some vulnerabilities under compliance with WTO rules for Buy America. But I will say that 95% of the world's customers and most of America's economic competitors actually are outside the U.S. borders. And so despite its shortcomings, uh, the, the WTO continues to provide the essential rule, rule book for U.S. economic and commercial engagement. So my recommendation to a Biden administration, I'm sure he's listening. My, recommendation, <laughs> my recommendation would be, um, you know, get back in there and reprioritize negotiating instruments that go to the WTO's core functions because study after study and data collection after data collection indicate that a properly run world trade organization facilitates, obviously facilitates growth, um, produces good results through dispute mechanism when WTO signatory members engage in a dispute, and most importantly, creates increase in wealth in countries that need it most. And my view on what I've heard from Mr. Biden so far is that when we look at the importance of the American worker, his priority for sort of a re-engaging any more uh, neutral and traditional multilateral perspective, those key issues I think will probably matter to him. So while he's been quiet on the WTO, I do think we will see a potentially trickle down but slow return to the US normalization of WTO and to other international institutions. Great. Right. Jean-Charles, I'd like to get you to comment on some of the politics of this because it's been noted not only around issues like uh, trade and tariffs, but even on issues like China but the kind of tough, aggressive uh, stance of the Trump administration has opened the door for Biden, in fact, to be perhaps tougher um, and a bit more aggressive than he might have otherwise been. Do you buy that? One of the big changes, whether it's with China or others, is that Mr. Trump chose to, a very belligerent a, a, a approach to things. And I, I guess he thought that would get help him get things done. And so the Biden administration, there's going to be a big change in tone, obviously, which we shouldn't underestimate. I mean, it, it counts in the way that you deal with people. Now, the, uh, the Trump administration took a very hard run at China, uh, on trade in particular, but, you know, look at the outcome today. I mean, uh, the, it's not as though the trade deficit has gotten any smaller. In fact, it hasn't. And what he was trying to do effectively is to do a managed trade as a very transactional approach of managed trade with China. Mr. Biden has very openly said he's going to take a coalition approach, which honestly is much more aligned with what Canada needs 
a coalition approach means working with Europeans, working with other countries so that we deal with China as a coalition as opposed to going it at alone. And, and that I think is going to be very significant. Now, Mr. Biden, Allison promised two summits, uh, by the way, this was before the campaign. Very interesting if he goes through with this. One of them was on democracy as opposed to authoritarian regimes. And obviously the subtitle there is China and not just China, it's maybe, you know, Turkey or Russia and uh, other regimes. And so the Biden administration would take that kind of approach. And here you have a president who has a lot of experience in foreign policy. One of the interesting things, by the way, I like about Mr. Biden, he reminds me of Bush father, two mandates as vice president. He knows of Washington inside out and human nature is very persistent. I mean, here's someone who always liked foreign policy. He enjoys, he engages in that. And multilateralism will come to him much more spontaneously, easier than it did in the case of Trump. So in, in the case of China, I think we'll see. But it will still be, let's not be mistaken, it'll still be great power competition, is what they, we describe it in academic circles. China is an emerging superpower, and Mr. Biden is going to be tough on China. But he won't go at uh, alone. And the other summit he promised, by the way, was on climate. And there's an alignment with Canada that's going to be interesting, uh, much more of an alignment. And on climate, his on the trade side, Martha, as everyone has seen, is very much the expert on this. But there is a strong trend in the trade and government circles to align climate objectives to trade objectives. Now, trade negotiators hate that. They don't like that. You know, Macron has been out there saying, we will not do a trade agreement with anyone who does not sign on to the Paris Climate Accord. But that's clearly the direction in which we are going. The Europeans are looking very seriously at a carbon border adjustment fee or tax. So Biden would adjust. Now, could Biden deliver on that in this Congress with Republicans holding a majority in the Senate? Difficult to see how that could happen, but there, there will be an alignment on that side. But on China, I think, Relatively good news. I'm more confident in that collective approach than the go-alone approach that the previous administration had. Martha, do you want to comment on this? Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I I, I fully agree that the, um, the, the, I think the, practically speaking, the best way forward is likely the way forward that Mr. Charest described, which is to realign um, the U.S. with the allies and to take a, a sort of collective approach to how it will deal with China. Uh, I, I think one of the important things that uh, Mr. Biden and the administration are going to have to review sooner rather than later are in fact the tariffs that are attached to those Chinese goods. Um, and at the moment, it's unclear when that timing is going to happen. Um, it, it, is, uh, it is on the record that he has committed to reviewing these tariffs, but there is no commitment at this juncture to eliminating them. Um, and the result is that to the extent that a continued pressure between the U.S. and China exists on that trade piece, uh, you know, Canada often finds itself caught in the middle on a trade policy and certainly on a, on a political level as well. Um, the reporter in me um, has to ask the, the sort of straight up political question, though, too, uh, if there's a change in tone from the United States uh, toward China and perhaps toward multilateral um, action, what might that mean for Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who were imprisoned in China, um, or perhaps even the case of uh, Meng Wanzhou, which is making its way through the courts? John? 
<laughs> well, you know, Canada's in a very, very difficult position right now on that specific uh, specific case. And uh, these, these are charges that emanate from the United States and on an extradition. So if the Americans, and I, I think Prime Minister Trudeau had suppressed the uh, Trump administration to help us resolve this and allow the two Michaels or create conditions that will allow the two Michaels to return. And interestingly enough, Prime Minister Trudeau has raised this on his call with President Biden. That's very significant. By the way, you know, in, in diplomatic language, when you make a call like that and you choose to raise a specific issue, that is a very real signal to the other side. If he were not to raise an issue, for example, it would be interpreted as saying, well, maybe it's not that important for them. But these first calls, the choices Mr. Trudeau makes in terms of here are the things I want to talk about because you can't raise everything is very significant. So it speaks to how important this is for Canada. And we're all hopeful that uh, this it's become a distraction, frankly. Let me put it that way, a distraction. And uh, that we would be able to get back to the business. But in the end, back to your question, Allison, Mr. Biden's going to be very tough on China. I don't think uh, it'll be a different approach. But there, this is about great power competition. And he's going to continue to be very tough. And, and Canada will, uh, will be part of that discussion as we, we deal with this emerging superpower. We'll leave it there for now, but we'll bring you the rest of the conversation on a future episode. You've been listening to Alison Smith, formerly of the CBC, in conversation with McCarthy Tatro's Jean Charest, Martha Harrison, and Awi Sinha. You'll hear from Aliyah Ramji, who was also on the panel, next time. Law in the Time of COVID-19 is produced by Chloe Thomas and edited by Chloe Thomas, Abby Stafford, and Miriam Veilleux. Special thanks to Lara Nathans, Trevor Lawson, Judith McKay, Elizabeth Burks, Allie Adams, Kathleen Hogan, Taryn Hunter, Andrea Watson, Matilda Kramertz, and the entire team here at McCarthy Tatro. Not literally here, of course, but you know what I mean. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. We also hope you'll send us your suggestions for future episodes. We want to talk about what you want to hear about. You can reach me on Twitter at, at Adam Goldenberg or by email at agoldenberg at mccarthy.ca. Make sure you check out our firm's COVID-19 hub for business leaders, which you can reach from the main page of our website at www.mccarthy.ca. This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. Thanks for listening, and please wash your hands.